You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We've been unpacking what led Putin to invade Ukraine and whether he has violated international law. We've been looking into, among other things, what he's thinking, why he chose now, and what is his end game. So our podcast today is about the history of Ukraine, a word that means borderland, as well as Russia. And my guest, fortunately, is Professor Angela Stent, author of several books on this Russian-Ukrainian history, as well as the senior advisor for the Georgetown Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's also served as a national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council from 2004 to 2006. She's written The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century, for which she won the American Academy of Diplomacy's Douglas Dillon Award for the best book on the practice of American diplomacy. More recently, she wrote the substantive and prescient book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. Professor Stent, we are thrilled to have you on NSLT. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Well, let's roll right into it. Let's talk about Putin's early life, since at this point, we're all trying to arrive at a profile of him in the hopes that we can somehow predict his future conduct. So Putin was born, Vladimir Putin was born in 1952 in Leningrad, just a few years, of course, after World War II had ended. And during World War II, there was a siege of Leningrad by the Nazis for 900 days, and about a million people perished. They were starved out by the Nazis. So it's into that atmosphere and a city that was still recovering from World War II that he was born. He lived with his parents in a modest communal apartment, as most people did in the Soviet period. So you had one room in an apartment, and you shared the kitchen and the bathroom with everyone else. And he was the third child. His parents had already lost two sons, both of them during the siege of Leningrad. So he was, by his own account, a very indifferent student. He didn't do very well in school, short in stature. He was bullied a lot. And the way he sort of got out of that was by joining a club in which he learned sambo, which is a sort of mixture of judo and other martial arts. And he became a judo champion. And in my book, I have a picture of him from the Leningrad Evening News when he was 26 years old, saying, this is our new judo champion, and we know he's going to go far. They didn't know how far he was going to go. And the other way that he started doing better in school was he decided to study German. And his German teacher really encouraged him to do that. He learned German, which then became very important in his career in the KGB. So by the time he graduated from high school, he then went on and studied law. He has a law degree from Leningrad State University. From his own account, he tried to join the KGB even beforehand, and they told him and said, go away, you know, study and come back. As far as we know, he never practiced as an attorney. So he was in the provincial KGB, the Leningrad KGB, not the Moscow central KGB, and he really wanted a foreign assignment. 
And so in 1985, he was sent to East Germany to the city of Dresden, a provincial city, one of the few in East Germany that did not have access to West German television. And he was a case officer. And as he says in a series of biographical interviews done with him when he became president in 2000, he quote unquote, worked with people and with papers. So he apparently really enjoyed living in East Germany with his wife and the two little children. And then November 9th, 1989 came along when the Berlin Wall fell. And then suddenly the people in Dresden, they converged on the KGB headquarters where he was, and they demanded to see their files. And so he recounts in these biographical interviews, staying up all night and burning as many files as he could. And the furnace, in fact, exploded. The other thing he recounts in that interview is that he kept calling Moscow and asking for instructions. What should I do? The mob's outside. Apparently, Moscow never returned his calls. There was silence from Moscow, something he remembered then later on. Eventually, in 1990, when Germany was unified, he had to leave East Germany. He had to leave his promising career as a KGB agent and then went back to Leningrad. And so for him, the impending collapse of the Soviet Union was also a personal trauma, if you like, because he at that point had lost his profession. So he, of course, also missed the Gorbachev years, the entire Gorbachev period of liberalization and opening up to the world. He missed because he was in one of the most conformist communist countries, East Germany. So he gets back to Leningrad. And for about a year, we're not quite sure what he did. I think he worked in the university, but also in some kind of intelligence capacity. And then, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed. And it was then that he was given a job by his old law school professor, Anatoly Sobchak, who had become the mayor of the newly renamed St. Petersburg again. He was the deputy mayor responsible for foreign economic contacts. So it's in this period, sort of 1992 to 1996, that Putin gets to know all of these foreigners, Americans and others who were trying to invest in St. Petersburg. It's a time of wild capitalism. And it's also the time when he began to make a lot of money with some of his colleagues. They had a cooperative where they all had houses on the same lake. And many of those people are now very wealthy oligarchs and still close to him. So he was enjoying his position as deputy mayor. And then an election happened in 1996, a rather dirty election. And his candidate, Mayor Sobchak, lost. So he was out of a job. And I think the lesson he took from that is what use are elections if you can't be sure who's going to win them. And then fortunately for him, he was brought to Moscow by some people who thought that he had some potential in him. And he had various jobs in Moscow. The last job he had before he became prime minister in 1999 was as head of the FSB, the Domestic Intelligence Service, because the KGB had been divided into domestic and foreign service after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Apparently, he did rather well in that job. And at that point, Boris Yeltsin, and we're talking 1999 now, was ailing. He had had several heart attacks, and he really wasn't in a fit position to continue being president. And so his family around him, both biological family and family in the sense of the people close to him, looked around for a potential successor. And they tried various people as prime ministers. And in September 1999, they appointed Vladimir Putin, really not very well known at all outside a small circle, 
as the new prime minister. And really the first thing he did was to launch the second Chechen war in September of 1999, going back. And this war, again, lasted for a number of years and it entailed ruthless destruction of buildings, civilians raising to the ground of the capital. By December of that year, a few months later, when Yeltsin decided that he really couldn't go on anymore, the family came to Putin and they said, we would like you to take over as president. And the condition for this is there will be no prosecution of the Yeltsin family. They will retain their liberty and their assets. And Putin agreed to do that. He was then duly elected president and he succeeded Yeltsin. And he did keep to his side of the bargain. That is to say that the Yeltsin family itself was never prosecuted. They were left at liberty. Nothing happened to them. But a number of the oligarchs around Yeltsin, and maybe we're going to talk about that later, did not retain their liberty. And I'm saying this because when we talk about what's happening today, what could happen in the future, for a managed succession like that to work for the incumbent, there have to be guarantees for the incumbent, but they're also the people around the incumbent also want guarantees. And of course, in the end, Putin persecuted a number of the Yeltsin-era oligarchs. So that's a sort of brief history of how he became president. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) And it certainly paints an interesting picture, but I do like the Mm -hmm. expression managed succession. (laughs) That's nice. That's a nice euphemism. Let's talk about the area of interest right now in the Ukraine, and that is Crimea, Donbass, the port cities that line the Black Sea. Why are those regions of such intense current interest to Putin and presumably to Russia? So I think we have to go back and look briefly at kind of how Crimea became part of the Russian Empire. So in the 18th century, Empress Catherine the Great, she went, the Russia went to war with the Ottoman Empire and they seized Crimea. And this was kind of a prize, you know, given its geographic location there. Uh, and the whole Black Sea area then became very important for Russia's projection as a great power. The port of Odessa, you know, a major port a few hundred years ago in really leading up to until now. So that's always been an important part then of the Russian empire. And if you fast forward to today, or first of all, to the Soviet era. So during the Soviet period, you had different republics of the Soviet Union. You had the Russian Republic and you had the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Putin, in one of his speeches just before the invasion began, again, criticized Lenin for creating this Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which implied that there was such a thing as a separate Ukrainian nationality. And in 1954, Khrushchev, who was then the leader of the Soviet Union, decided on a whim that even though Crimea was at that point technically part of the Russian Republic, he was, quote, unquote, going to give Crimea to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And so Crimea then became part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And, you know, during the Soviet period, that really didn't make any difference. It was just an administrative development. So when the Soviet Union then collapsed, Crimea, and it was agreed, you know, when Yeltsin signed the agreement with the Ukrainian and Belarusian leaders that they were going to dissolve the Soviet Union, it was agreed that the country Ukraine would remain within the same borders as the Soviet Republic had. Those borders had changed in 1945, but they'd been the same since then, which included Crimea. The problem then was what was going to happen to the Soviet Black Sea Fleet? 
So there was this huge fleet headquartered in Sevastopol, which is part of Crimea. And so after a lot of difficult negotiations, the Russians and Ukrainians decided to split the Black Sea Fleet into half of it being Ukrainian, half of it being Russian. And because Ukraine was in such debt to Russia at the time, they just leased it to the Russians uh, for free. And so that arrangement lasted until 2014. So you had both the Russian Black Sea Fleet and the Ukrainian now Black Sea Fleet headquartered in Crimea you know, where after Putin had become president, he was pretty unhappy about this. So in 2014, what precipitated the Russian annexation of Crimea was there was a color revolution against the incumbent president Yanukovych, who was close to Russia. And as things got worse and there was more violence, Yanukovych had signed a treaty agreement with the French and the Polish foreign ministers agreeing that he would move the elections up. And after he did that, his security detail abandoned him. So he fled Ukraine. And it was at that point that, according to what Putin said afterwards, Putin, they decided to move and take back Crimea because, as Putin said, we didn't know with a new Ukrainian government coming in whether it would join NATO and suddenly, you know, our Black Sea fleet would be no more because NATO would be in the Black Sea. So Crimea, again, it was also historically the place where a lot of Russians took their vacations. If you read short stories by Chekhov, you have wonderful descriptions of Crimea. So Crimea for, for Putin was very important. And it was wildly popular in Russia, the annexation of Crimea. They felt that they had taken back something that belonged to them uh, and that Khrushchev should never have given away. And then the other parts that we, you know, were very much in play, the Donbass region, and this is where Russia then started a war um, in the spring and fall of 2014. Russian troops came in and there were people living there, Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, who we call separatists, but they're not really separatists. They're Russian proxies. And they began this war to take over this uh, southeastern part of Ukraine. It's important for Russia because there are so many Russian speakers there. And because because from Putin's point of view, as we know, Ukraine isn't a separate country or nationality, and these lands should belong to Russia. And so you got the, first of all, recognition of these two entities as people's republics, and now Russia has recognized them as independent countries. And what we see now happening in the second phase of the war in Ukraine is the determination to take more territory in that area and secure a land bridge to Crimea. So again, seen as strategically very important from the Russian point of view. That's an interesting history dating back to Catherine the Great. Let's talk for just a minute about international bodies generally. We've talked to a lot of people on this podcast and one of the things that many people have claimed is that Putin dislikes international bodies. He thinks they're one, ineffective, but two, he sees things like EU, NATO, and even the United Nations to a degree as mere extensions of the United States efforts at sort of soft influence, if you like. But that isn't really entirely true, that he dislikes all international bodies, is it? Well, first of all, the Russians don't dislike the United Nations. I mean, if they didn't have 
a permanent seat on the Security Council on a veto, they really wouldn't be much of a great power anymore. I mean, that's one of the uh, means by which they exercise influence globally. So they, in general, like the United Nations. Clearly, they don't like the United Nations when it votes against them, as the General Assembly did recently condemning the invasion of Ukraine. But they always uphold the United Nations as a body that they, and the Chinese too, you know, want to, whose rules they want to govern the world. And they don't view the United Nations anymore as being dominated by the US or the West. I mean, that was true earlier on during the Cold War, but that's not true anymore. So I would say in general, they like the United Nations with, with a few exceptions. The general rule of thumb is that Russians don't like organizations that they don't dominate. They create their own organizations like the Eurasian Economic Union, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, although they're in that, of course, with the Chinese and other countries, and then the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, China, India, South Africa. So those organizations they like. But what they don't like are these Western organizations with their own rules. I mean, interestingly enough, it took them 19 years to get into the World Trade Organization, partly because there was opposition to that within Russia from the business community. They finally got in in 2011. And of course, now they're out again. So the European Union, they've never liked. They don't understand how countries can give up their sovereignty voluntarily. And they don't like the fact that the European Union sees itself as a community community of values as well as a political community. And so there they prefer to deal individually, bilaterally with different European countries and bypass the European Union. So the relationship between Russia and the European Union has never been good. It's obviously much worse now. Uh, and similarly, obviously, they see NATO as an adversary, even though, you know, in 1997, the Permanent Joint Council was founded, the Russian NATO Council. And they enjoyed until at least the annexation of Crimea, their own relationship with NATO had their own meetings. But in general, of course, they don't like NATO when they see it as now by now as an enemy organization. But I would also say a lot of this is hyped up now. Condoleezza Rice and others have again said that when the NATO enlargement of 2004 occurred, where the Baltic states joined, there was never really any complaint from Vladimir Putin or anyone else around him about that. And I think the final thing I'll say about organizations is that Bill Clinton has a famous phrase in his book describing, and this was really the relationship with Boris Yeltsin, that the Russians are lousy joiners. But of course, they did join the G8. They were then kicked out in 2014. And so they were quite happy to be in that club of kind of wealthy Western countries as long as it lasted. I think any opportunity to use the word lousy really should be taken. <laughs> That's my opinion. Um, lousy joiners. So many of us are. For, but for the past 100 years, because this history with Ukraine is just ancient and Putin himself does like to bring up ancient grievances. But for the past 100 years, Ukraine has fallen under specifically Ukraine, that is, has fallen under various treaties and obligations some of which have involved the United States and Russia as signatories. Could you talk for a minute about those agreements and how Russia has tended to see them and frankly, how we have tended to see them uh, and whether any of us have met our obligations under them to your belief? Also, I think the main treaty is the, it's not a treaty, it's the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
Ukraine was the third largest nuclear country in the world because it had all these Soviet nuclear weapons stationed there. And the US was very much concerned about having Russia be the only post-Soviet nuclear state. Kazakhstan and Belarus also had some uh, nuclear weapons. And so uh, the US worked very hard to get Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons. And they finally succeeded in doing that in 1994. And even then, Yeltsin was reluctant to meet with the then Ukrainian president because it implied recognition of Ukraine as a country, but he did. Part of that was the signing of this Budapest memorandum, but it was very carefully worded. It gave assurances, not guarantees, assurances that the signatories, and the signatories were Russia and Ukraine and the United States and Great Britain, that they would respect Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty, and that if these were violated, the United Nations should come to Ukraine's assistance. That's also part of this Budapest Memorandum. If you talk to the American negotiators, they will say they deliberately use the word assurances and not guarantees uh, because you know, they weren't obligating themselves to come to Ukraine's defense if something happened. But Russia signed this memorandum and Russia, you know, violated it in 2014, the first time when it annexed Crimea, and obviously it's violated now. And do you know how the Russians respond to that? They said, well, the government that we signed it with in 1994 was a legitimate government. But after the Maidan revolution and the, and the flight of Yanukovych and the what they call a coup in Kiev in 2014, that's no longer a legitimate government. And therefore, you know, this, this memorandum is, is null and void. That's the, that's the way they deal with the legal niceties. I should also say that in 1997, Boris Yeltsin went to Ukraine and signed a treaty with Ukraine, a treaty of good neighborliness and friendship, again, recognizing the borders between uh, Russia and Ukraine, they had to work out de delimit the border, and also, you know, promising to recognize Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. So that was actually a bilateral treaty that the Russians have violated. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 